We are on week three of a six-week series that uh, I'm calling This Church. Uh, and what it is is a Sunday series review of the last year and a half. Uh, beginning last January 2013, we started... Is that last January anymore? I guess that's the last, last January. Uh, we started... A, we did a 10-week series on the church, ecclesiology, studying the church to see what God's heartbeat is for the church, what the church is, what we're to be doing, what our purpose and mission and vision should be, um, you know, and just the Lord really rocked me and I know rocked many of us to and restored in us a passion for the church, his bride. Um, and then following that 10-week series, we got into a series that lasted 36 weeks, uh, walking through 1 Corinthians. What was amazing about that is that uh, we got to see all of the His Church doctrine lived out in a first-century church in Greece, in, in Corinth. And so we saw these truths from the Scripture affirmed in a church life of Corinth. And so before we just moved on, I really felt like the Lord would have us review, see how we're doing with these things, and be reminded of these things. Perhaps, maybe even it's a first time thing that the Lord would speak to you today and give you a passion for what he calls his bride, the church. Um, in the book Vintage Church, Mark Driscoll and Gary Brashear's brought out a definition that's gathered from scripture and it's it's one that has has been seared into my heart and I want to share it with you today and hopefully you're 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 almost able to finish my sentence as I read it they write the local church that would be Calvary Chapel of Crick County in this case is a community of regenerated born again believers who confess Jesus Christ as Lord in obedience to the scripture, they organize under qualified leadership, gather regularly for preaching and worship, observe the biblical sacraments of communion and baptism, are unified by the spirit, are disciplined for holiness, and scatter to fulfill the great commission as missionaries for God's glory and their joy. I think that's a very biblical, robust definition of the church. And so in our series of this church, uh, we've, we're th three weeks into it right now. In the first week, we just got that definition of the church and what is the church. And many of us have the idea that it's a building. You know, here's the church, here's the steeple. Open the door, see all the people. You know it, right? All, even as a pastor, so often it's like, hey, I'm going to church or I'm going down to the church. And we just get like, it's building. It's all about building white church, something like that. We don't have a white church or a steeple. So I don't know why I still go there, but it's the way it is. So <laughs> we think of it as the building, but God has corrected us in our understanding of the church to realize that it is, it is the, the, the group of all true believers in Jesus Christ who've been born again. That's the church. And, and then they are marked by the characteristics that this definition shows us. We, we saw whose church it is. As Jesus says in Caesarea Philippi to Peter, he says, 
that it's my church, not Rory's, <laughs> it's Jesus saying it. So it's Jesus's church. And then he goes on to say, and I will build it. I will build it upon the rock of Jesus being the Christ, the son of the living God. So it's Jesus's church. In fact, he owns us because he has purchased us with his blood. You know, the value of something is shown by who owns it and how much they bought it for. Jesus owns us and he bought us not with some perishable currency like gold or silver and not with the blood of bulls or goats, but with his own precious blood. He has ransomed us off the auction block of slavery of sin. And he's redeemed us as a people to himself. And so we are a people who are Jesus's, who've been bought by Jesus. That gives us incredible value. Our text in the first series and the first week was 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, where we see that we are a holy nation, church. We are a chosen generation. We are his own special people, a royal priesthood. That gives us great value. We are his, we are chosen, we are bought. We have a task to minister to the Lord as royal priesthood. And so I would challenge you today, if you have a low view of the church, if you think the church is pathetic, I'll, I'll give it to you that there are many pathetic churches but the church of God's redeemed people are precious and valuable and they are his and he owns us. The first Peter passage goes on to say that we are this chosen generation so that we can proclaim the praises of him. That gives us our mission as a church as Calvary Chapel Kirk County. Our mission is to glorify God and proclaim the praises of him who's called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So that was kind of the first, first part of the first week. Just who are we? What are we? You know, and, and I would beg you that if you've been wounded by the church or if you have a, a sour taste or bitter taste in your mouth towards the church, we know that the, that the church has men and women in it and we fail. But we would beg you to come back to Jesus and come back to the one who says, this is my church and I will build it and see what he would have for you in it. And even in this little series that we're doing, the second thing that we saw in the first series was that, that that mission of the church, the chief aim of the church, our target, and this applies to Calvary Chapel of Crick County, is that we would glorify God, that we would glorify God. And so the purpose and the mission of the church is to glorify God and secondarily to reach into each other and love one another and take care of one another and then finally to go out and to preach the gospel so that all nations might know the gospel and come to know Jesus. In the second week, just a quick review here for you guys, we, we were shown that such incredible blessings and grace from the Lord being chosen by him and bought by him, that that moves us towards obligation and duty and responsibility. As the French slogan says, 
nobility obligates. When we've been given such wonderful things, we have a responsibility. To whom much is given, much is required. We respond to the goodness of our God and the redemption of our God and the love of our God by giving and loving and serving. And the first thing that we saw we have an obligation in, which is a strong word, it's a good word, it's not a bad word, obligation, duty, responsibility. It's the same word that a doctor has. We have Nathan here. He has a duty and a responsibility to take care of the patients or a police officer has a duty and responsibility to to protect the citizens. And we as the redeemed purchased possession of Jesus Christ have have an obligation, number one, to consider one another and love one another in order to stir up love and good works. All right, so that means that All of this being a Christian is much more than just being about me. In fact, even coming and being part of this local church, it's much more than just me. What am I going to get out of it? How much am I going to be entertained? You know, am I going to get warm fuzzies in the back of my neck or what? You know, and rather we're to consider one another. We're to give thoughtful, intentional uh, labor towards inciting one another towards love, towards good work. We think about each other when we, before we even come in here. We're prayerful for the the single moms who are coming and trying to get their kids ready and trying to train up their kids in the way of the Lord. We're prayerful prayerful and considerate of the people who have marriage problems so that we can come and and stir them up towards love and good work and pray for their marriage. We're thoughtful of the people whose kids are walking in rebellion right now. We're thoughtful of the people that are serving here and we're praying for the people. We're about others. We serve and love one another. Secondarily, in our second week, We saw that we have the responsibility. In fact, all of this incitement of one another towards love and good works leads us to the responsibility of being together in the regular gatherings of the local church. And we went to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, that tells us that we are to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but we are to exhort and admonish one another so much more as we see the day approaching. As we see the Lord coming back. Friends, that is the very next verse that follows. Consider one another that you may stir one another up towards love and good works. That's the very next verse. So all of this thoughtful intention towards each other of loving one another and bearing long with one another and forgiving one another and encouraging one another. All of that necessitates the being together to do that. The assembling of ourselves together as the early church in Acts chapter 2 verse 42 continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in the breaking of bread and in fellowship and in prayers. And a great many were added to the church. Great many were saved. And so too, we as the local church, we follow that description in the book of Acts as gathering together regularly, continuing steadfastly, giving ourselves assiduously towards being together, gathering together. And the Hebrews who were told not to neglect that were a group of people who were being killed for Christianity. They were a group of people that were being kicked out of their community because they were Christians. They were being kicked out of their family, written out of the family will, ostracized from the the community and kicked out of the synagogues. This is a group of people that were being persecuted and they are told in all of that, do not forsake the regular assembling of yourselves together. In fact, as you see the day of the Lord approaching, 
be together more and more and more. It's a far cry from where we are as the American church who says, if any and everything comes up that gives me a chance to bail and not be a part of the the Sunday morning service or the Wednesday night or whatever they're calling us towards that we could give ourselves to doctrine and to fellowship and to communion and to encouraging one another and to prayers, then I'm going to take it. I'm out of here. It shows a heart issue. It's like asking, how, much, how often do I need to hug my kid and kiss my kid? It should be the opposite. It should be, man, how much can I be a part of this beautiful thing that God has put together? The grace that he has given us that we would come together and encourage one another and admonish and exhort and so much more as we see the day approaching. And so we have these duties as we've been bought and we've been purchased, we've been called into this organism called the church a few different words that we discuss are that we are a body with many members right or we are a flock with many sheep or we are a building made up made up of many living stones all of those things tell us that we're to be together and that this life is to be lived out together And so today, and and the next time we come together in our This Church series, we're going to go over, um, we have four more of these wonderful obligations and duties and responsibilities that are privileges. We have four more to go over, and the goal is to get through two of them today and two of them uh, in the weeks to come. Because next week we got the men's retreat, we got Jason Beal speaking here at our church, and then the following week is outdoor service, and then the following week... Uh, the plan is to be back and, and be wrapping up this series. So uh, our third obligation that we have, uh, this wonderful duty as the redeemed people of God, is that we are to use the gifts that God has given us. And that we are to steward the gifts and the grace in the service of our brothers and sisters in this local body. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 is our scripture this morning we want to bring a lot out of. Many other passages in the New Testament that speak of, of, of gifts and their use, and we'll see a few other as well. But 1 Peter 4, 10 tells us, As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Something that we see in this passage is that each person has received a gift. So all of these obligations that we speak of, that would be towards this local body, they're actually to people that, first of all, are born-again Christians, secondarily, who have, um, who call this their home church, okay? Uh, But the most important paramount thing is, are you a born-again Christian? And if you're a born-again Christian, you have been given a spiritual gift, a gift that 1 Corinthians chapter 12 calls a manifestation of the Spirit, That means whenever that gift is being used, God has shown up. The Spirit of God has shown up when these gifts are in operation. And 1 Corinthians chapter 12 tells us that this manifestation of the Spirit, these gifts 
are distributed as the Holy Spirit wills. So the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, is a gift giver. And he gives the gifts to whoever he feels it will, it will be best for. And each Christian who's been born again has received a gift. What are we to do with those gifts? Where our 1 Peter 4.10 tells us that we are to minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And my prayer last night in reading over this passage and just meditating on it was that we wouldn't get our eyes off of the grace of God. We wouldn't get our eyes on this, oh, I have to do this stuff. It's just a bunch of stuff that my pastor keeps laying on for me to do. But no, we would get our eyes on the grace of God, that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ would be the motivator behind all that we're called to do as the church. He has given us manifold grace multicolored, just broad grace poured out upon us. And we've been made stewards of it. We've been entrusted with the resource of the gifts of the Spirit. And if you are a Christian, I pray God would wake you up out of your slumber today if you don't even know what your gifts are. You've been given one. Praise God. Can we give God a hallelujah? We do that here? I don't know. We've been given a gift or gifts. Some have a baker's dozen of gifts. Praise God, some, they've got one gift. Man, I know this is my gift, and I'm going to use it to edify the church and display God's glory around Prineville and across the globe. But we've been given these gifts, and in the giving and the, in the receiving, there's a stewardship that's been entrusted. And something that is affirmed in our 1 Corinthians study over the last year and a half, was that Paul says, if, if, if I'm an elder, I'm an apostle, I'm an evangelist, I'm a missionary, whether you're thinking Paul or Apollos or Cephas, you need to consider us as stewards of the mysteries of God. And then he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. This is something we see in the parables of the Lord Jesus, that when a master entrusts a stewardship or a talent to his workmen, to his servants, that they better use those things well, because if they neglect it or if they hide it under a bushel, if you will, that when the master returns, man, there's, there's judgment for that. There's rebuke for that. And there's reward for those that are faithful to use those things as they've been given. One man said, a Christian that has no passion to serve is at the very least a conflict in terms. A non-serving Christian is an oxy, well, it's not an oxymoron, it'd be a, yeah, I guess I said it already, so great. Sorry about that. Because as we've been given a, an insight into the grace of God, we've received the grace of God, we see his great call and love and his mind towards us that he sovereignly called us and elected us and, and saved us and redeemed us we have a great joy in responding with service charles spurgeon said the vigorous healthy christian must serve the lord i and serve him with gladness too because he is then obeying the instincts of his nature and god has made our instincts when we follow them to be pleasurable the instincts of the new nature, when we follow them out to lead us into service and consequently 
there comes into a soul a pleasure unknown to those who are not partakers of the regenerate nature. I have said that to the Christian, it is a delight to serve God. And so it is because it exercises in him those powers which yield delight. Believing service is not the performance of work naturally irksome to us, to which we bring ourselves by effort, but Christian service is the doing of sacred duties, which to our new nature are congenial occupations, things in which we take our delights. The service of God is not to him an employment to which he would escape if he could, No, he feels it to be an intense delight and only wishes that he could be more perfectly taken up with it. In Prineville terms, (laughs) to serve the Lord as a Christian is not an, I have to, it's a, I get to, and I can't get enough because look what he's done for me. I in turn want to give myself for him and I get to give myself him. This manifold grace of God has been given to us. These gifts have been divided by Peter into two simple categories. And while Romans chapter 15 and Ephesians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 give us a a list of gifts that are not exhaustive, but they are a list, Peter kind of just breaks them down into two basic sets of gifts. When he tells us that there's a a gift of speaking, if anyone speaks in these gifts, let him speak as the oracles of God. This might be teaching, preaching, evangelism, exhortation, tongues, interpretation of tongues, prophesying, words of knowledge. These are the verbal gifts. As Jameson Fawcett and Brown say in their commentary, as to the manner of their speaking, it must be done with seriousness, reverence, and solemnity that become those holy and divine oracles. If someone is using their gift, which is a speaking gift, they better be very cautious and careful in what they're preaching, very prayerful of what they're preaching, very studious in what they're saying, And they're to operate in that gift with a confidence as they're speaking the oracles of God. But the other set of gifts here are these serving gifts or ministry. If anyone ministers, or that could be translated, if anyone serves or has these practical help type gifts, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies This might be something that that seems like a natural talent that somebody has, but that is obviously a gift of God that when they do this ability and do this talent, they are edifying the people around them and they are displaying God's glory. This may be their certain people's aptitudes or physical abilities. It might be their measure of financial resources that they are able to give. It might be their learned skills and administrative deeds. Caring for the poor, providing meals in the hospitality ministry. It might be waiting on tables or running the sound system or being an usher or a greeter here in the church. Caring for children in the children's ministry department. Maintaining the facility. Being part of the stewardship of the money of the church. 
hosting a Bible study at your home. Any act that expresses God's love and mercy in concrete, tangible, physical form. Now, one of our temptations is often to say, okay, those who have the speaking gifts and they speak the oracles of God, they definitely need to be like in tune with the Holy Spirit and the power of the Spirit and be prayerful and studious in the, in the way that they speak. But we forget that it says here, even if you're serving, you do it as with the ability God provides. Nothing will bring you to a place of burnout and bitterness in the ministry more than trying to clean up, you know, dirty toilets in the church or stack chairs in your own strength. If you're turning a rusty bolt here at Calvary Chapel, you do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you also trust that in any way you're serving practical, that God will provide the ability. If that's gas that's needed for your truck to haul something, if that's time that's needed, God will, will provide over and abundant the time that you're sacrificing. God brings the ability. With his, uh, with his commandments come his enablements. And we see also in Peter's passage, the end of using our gifts. This chief purpose of the gifts and serving, it says that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever, amen. That chief end of our church, that aim, that target here at Calvary Chapel is that God would be glorified no less in the using of our gifts than in the going out on world's missions or something like that. That is the motivation. As A.W. Tozer says, in Christian service, motive is everything. What is our motivation? It's the glory of God. And God is glorified when we use our gifts. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. And for the sake of time, let's go ahead and we'll read clear through uh, I think it's verse 17 through 16 there. <clears throat> Ephesians 4 it says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastor teachers, or pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ goes on to say, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men or the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edification of itself in love. And so we see at the beginning of Ephesians 4 in verse 11, there's this leadership that's been given, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, leadership of, of the church, and the purposes for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. And there's this false notion in probably the whole world, but definitely seen in the American church, that the pastors and the elders and the deacons or the paid staff, those are the ones that minister in the church. 
That's an unbiblical concept. We are, we are shown in Ephesians 4.11 that actually the pastors and the, and the teachers, they are given so that we could equip all of the saints here for the work of the ministry. So whose job is the work of the ministry? It's all of ours. We all have a role here in this church. We have an obligation. We have a duty. We have a responsibility. We have a role. We have a function here of everybody serving. And what will come from that is Christian maturity, solid doctrine. We just read it in Ephesians chapter 4. People will be knit into the head of the church, Jesus. And then we get into this body illustration that we also find in 1 Corinthians chapter um, 12, where Jesus is the head, and we are all as Christians members. So some of you are hands, some of you are toes, some of you are medulla oblongatas, some of you are the inner ear, some of you are, you know, this Adam's apple, some of you are the feet, some of you are the mouth, whatever. We've all got different parts, but we're all part of one body. And Jesus is the head. And we just read there that every joint is supposed to supply something and every part is supposed to do its share. Well, a research poll that was done, a research project that was done shows that the average within the church is that uh, 20% of the church does all of the work and all of the giving of resources and 80% of the church does nothing but sit in the bleachers and either cheer on or boo. That's, a, that's an 80-20 you know, ratio. Not good. That is not an Ephesians 4, every joint supplies and every part does its share. And I'm encouraged that I don't think that's the right ratio for our church. I know it's not 100% everyone's, but I know it's not 80-20. I feel that it's, it's better than that, and I'm encouraged by what God is doing here. But I would just ask you to ask the Lord to search your heart. Where are you at in the process? Are you part of the 20% that is serving, using your gifts, being part of encouraging people, considering one another? You're here, you're a part of things, you know what your gift is and you're using it. Or are you the 80 that just, you know, you come, you drain resources, you drain people's time, you're no help whatsoever, you're, you're not trying to be a part of things here and and you know, you, you're the 80 who's just, maybe you're critical and you just boo and you're just in the back. And God would say today, move out from the bleachers and come down onto the football field and be part of the game. God has a role for you in the game and it's incredible and it brings him much glory. Where are you in this process? <clears throat> There's a, a saying, I think it was Alistair Begg that said it, that everyone can't do everything, but everyone must do something. That's true in the church. We don't expect everybody to do everything, but we expect if you're born again Christian that call this your church, we, we expect that you be doing something. Yesterday, we were eating lunch at our house and my little girl, she's four, she had a quesadilla in front of her and it was all sliced up like a pie. And we were like, uh, noticing that she was reaching over and eating all of her brother's Cheetos from his sandwich and his Cheetos. And she's not eating her quesadilla. She's like mowing down from his Cheeto bowl. And, and we go, hey, Laney, you need to stop eating Russell's Cheetos and you need to eat your quesadilla. 
I don't know why, they're probably equal in nutritional value, but we made that one for you, okay? If you're a parent, you know why, okay? So that's, you eat your quesadilla. And just without even looking at it, just like, but mom, but dad, I can't eat all of it. And then reach over and grab more Cheetos and might be shoving the Cheetos in her mouth. And she said that like four times, I can't eat all of it. And I was just like, we're not asking you to eat all of it. Just, you're not even looking at it or touching it. And here in the church, we under, we're not asking you to do all of it. But some of you here, you're not even looking at or touching it. And God wants you to be all in. He wants you to be all in. And he wants you to, be, to come to where you're called to serve here and to serve there. You might not be called to serve over here, but you're called to serve here. You're called to serve here. Everyone can't do everything, but everyone must do something. Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 9 just kind of skimming this for the sake of time, we see in verse three that God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all of the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ. So we are individuals, but there's unity. We're brought together into one. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. So God has granted to each one a measure of faith. Context here is spiritual gifts, all right? And he says, he's given you a gift, so use it. Use it. And then he goes on and he gives a list of, of gifts. It might be the gift of ministry or serving or teaching. Or in verse 8, you've got exhorting or giving or leading or showing mercy with cheerfulness. Uh, maybe some of those are your gifts. Paul tells Timothy not to neglect the gift that had been given to him through the laying on of the hands of the elders. He says to stir up the gift. And I always, you know, just my childish mind, I go to like a, a pitcher of Kool-Aid that all the powder has sunk to the bottom. You know, it's been neglected. No one's drank it. No one's used it. It's just down to the bottom. And you've got to go and you've got to stir it up. Get that flavor back in there. I believe that God wants to stir up in our church just people who are, who've been Christians for 30 years that don't even know what their spiritual gift is. That they would ask the Lord. And even as 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I think verse 31 says, the last verse in that passage says, I'm sorry, it's chapter 14, the last verse in that passage, but it says, earnestly desire the best gift. It's chapter 12, because then he goes into the best gift is love. Sorry. I forgot my Bible. I'm not sure where I put it out there. So this is all in the Bible, I think. You might want to look it up. So in all of this series, we, we just, okay, we've learned it. We've been growing in these things. And then we look at the Corinthian church, and all of these things are being asked of the Corinthians or called out among the Corinthians, or if they're neglecting or forgetting to do these things, they're, they're, they're rebuked or they're chastened and they're encouraged to, to move towards these things. And we see that the Corinthian church, they were a church that was zealous for spiritual gifts. They were a Corinthian church that, that had come short in no gift. And in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, and you might just flip there because you can kind of browse, but we see that 1 Corinthians 12 shows us that we're not to be ignorant of spiritual gifts, and many of us are ignorant. We see that the Holy Spirit distributes the gifts to each one as he wills. 
We see in the context, 12 through 14, that these gifts are to be used in the local body for the building up of the church, 1 Corinthians 4.12, that if you seek to excel in spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel, not for yourself and to get warm fuzzies or goosebumps or, or to make yourself look great or anything. You do it to build each other up and glorify God. It's in the local body context. There's to be order in the use of the gifts in the local body context. There's to be a testing of the gifts. Chapter 14, if someone prophesies, it's to be tested in the local body context. And so the use of spiritual gifts is to be within the local body context primarily, not exclusively, but primarily. And when those gifts are used, the church is edified. And as Acts chapter 9, 31 says, when the church is edified, the church is multiplied. See it? Churches all throughout Judea, Galilee, Samaria had peace. They were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Do you see it? Edification equals multiplication. It's basic math. Driscoll says in, in, in Brashears in their book, say the Bible is clear that every Christian is a part of the larger church body and is expected to participate in the life of the local church with the gifts God has given him or her. This is so God may be glorified and so his people may be built up through their service to one another. This is, this is the clincher. It is therefore a sin for someone who claims to be a Christian not to be actively loving his or her Christian brothers and sisters and seeking to build up the church as faithful members of the church. So where are you at? Are you the 80% or the 20? Are you active in serving and, and pressing in? Or are you sitting in the bench, critical, maybe not paying attention, maybe complaining, maybe booing, Maybe you're even cheering, but you're not involved. And in the first Corinthians book, at the very last chapter, chapter 16, 15 through 18, we see the household of Stephanus. Early on in first Corinthians, we see Stephanus was one of the first Christians to be born again in Greece there in that region of Corinth or Achaia. And Stephanus and his whole household got saved and they had all devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. Do you remember that? That word devoted themselves in the King James Version says they had addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. What a picture. What, what an example to follow. This household that as a family refreshed Paul's spirits, he would say later on. We also have Aquila and Priscilla in 1 Corinthians 16, who in their marriage, they were coupled together to serve the Lord. Our second obligation that we have from looking at the scriptures that, that the, the nobility that's been given to us through the grace of God begs for us to be generously giving in support of the ministry work of the local body so that the gospel might be furthered. 1 Corinthians 16, 1, we're not, not there yet, but just recently, we were just in chapter 16, and, and we just were shown just how really when we talk about generous, benevolent giving, we're not even talking about money. We're talking about our hearts. John Piper said that 
how we handle money and possessions is often the barometer of how we trust and treasure Christ. How we handle our money and our resources and our time. What is reflected in our checkbook or in our visa transactions is like a little needle in our heart that show the integrity of our Christianity. And so if we are stingy in our giving, it shows that really there's a disconnect between here and here. The grace of God in our hearts. And Jesus himself is the one that said it. He says, don't go treasuring up your treasures here on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but store your treasures up in heaven. And not long after that, he says, you cannot serve God and money because you're either going to love money or you're going to hate God or you're going to love God and hate money, but you can't serve both of them. And Paul will tell us that it's the love of money that's the root of all evil, not money itself. But when our heart makes money our God, that's an evil thing. If we love it, it's evil. In Acts chapter 4, is it verse 26? I know it's on there. We're going to look at it together. This is a, a description in the early church. We have an example set for us. This is after... Jesus has ascended. This is after the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit has come upon them and given gifts. This is after Peter and John are persecuted. Um, uh, they're in, the, in Solomon's porch in the temple area. And then we see in Acts 4.32, now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold. And they laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each one as anyone had need. And so what we see is generosity that's born out of just revival, that's, that's born out of the Holy Spirit moving in our midst and the grace of God being poured out upon the early church. And we see the example and the model from the early church is that, that people were not fleshly-driven communists, but they were gospel-driven community. And it brought generosity. And what did they do? They came to the local church, they laid it before the apostles' feet, and the apostles distributed to anyone as anyone had need. Gene Wetz writes, if it is, it is by divine design that local churches provide the primary context in which Christians are to use their material possessions to further the work of God's kingdom. Any view then of how Christians should use their material possessions must focus first and foremost on local churches. This is what we see in the Bible to bypass this important concept in scripture is in essence to ignore what is recorded by gifted men inspired by the Holy Spirit. And not only do we see it in the early church right there in, in baby church, um, Jerusalem, but we see in our Corinthian series, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, where he writes, I was going to pop it up there because I only have the NIV version and I know that a lot are in New King James. 
says, now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. This is, this is Paul's standard operating procedure. On the first day of the week, Sunday, the day of worship, each one of you, so who? Let's just get this. All of you, each one of you, kids, develop the practice among your children. Let the wives be part of this worship time. Let the husbands be a part of this worship time. Each one of you should set aside a sum of money. 10%? A tithe? What? A sum. This is what we have in the New Testament. It's just a sum. And it's in keeping with your income. Saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. The example that we have in the New Testament is it comes to the local church on the day of worship. And as, a, as an act of worship, it's stored up here to be distributed. In this case, it was to be taken to Jerusalem for the famine that had, uh, that had happened there. Now, from this, we have the book of 2 Corinthians, where in chapter 8 and 9, Paul revis- revisits this offering that was going to be taken. And the Corinthians were actually really excited at first. To, first day of the week, everyone bring it in, and they were like, woohoo! In fact, word of their excitement spread all the way up into Macedonia so that everyone up in Macedonia was like, woohoo, we want to give two. Look at the Corinthians. Let, we want to be like the Corinthians. And they, Macedonians start just make, bringing in everything. And in the deep abundance of their poverty, they just were liberality, liberal in their, in their giving. But then the Corinthians had like forgotten about it and forgot to start storing stuff up. And so Paul writes to them in 2 Corinthians 8. He says, I just want to make sure that you guys get back in action (laughs) because when I come down to collect that for the church in Jerusalem, like you're probably going to want to have something there so you're not embarrassed and stuff. Okay, so get that done. Okay. But he points everybody to Jesus in the midst of it. He also, in, in this example of the Macedonians, says that the Macedonians were giving according to their ability And beyond their ability, they were freely willing. So here we just read that on the first day of the week to come and and give a sum in keeping with your income, you know, so so it's, you know, there's there's something that you should pray about is here's my income. What should I give to the Lord on this weekly basis? But the Macedonians said, you know what? Here's our ability. We're going to give this. Oh, you know what? We're going to give more than our ability. Oh, you know what? We're freely willing. And later on, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, the Lord loves a hilarious giver. He loves it when we're a cheerful giver and when we're not like counting pennies, like, let's see, like, so I make this much money. What's a tenth of that? Man, that seems like a lot. Drop it in the box on your way out the door, not even worshiping the Lord in it. That's not how the Lord desires it to be for us. In fact, in the message to the Corinthians, reminding them to be givers and generous givers at that, he says, don't you guys get your eyes off Jesus in your giving. In chapter 8, verse 9, he says, hey, let's remember Jesus for a second, who when he was rich, he became poor, so that you who were poor might become rich. Guys, the gospel provides the motivation for our generous giving. And the last verse of chapter 9 says, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So whenever we talk about giving, it should never be out of a begrudging obligation. 
It should always be out of a heart that flows freely and wonderfully out of thankfulness for his generosity. He wants us to be not warehouses that just store a bunch of stuff up. And man, isn't that the American dream? Let's be hoarders. I'm not even getting rid of my junk. All right, let's be hoarders. Let's get as many toys in this garage as we possibly can, not share it with anybody. Mine is the American dream. And the Lord says, man, you missed it. I've called you guys to be distribution houses so that you would give these resources just freely and cheerfully. And if you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. But if you sow freely, you're going to reap freely. So give, be distribution houses. Even if you're living on somebody's couch, you can be someone who's freely giving. You might have totally run out of cash. You might be like the widow with the mite, who's the example in the New Testament of someone who's freely giving. But you're given of everything else that you have. We're givers as Jesus is the giver. We move beyond the concept that is so Old Testament of the tithe. We're not under the law of the tithe anymore. In fact, if we were under the law of the tithe, I got news for you. There's three different tithes in the Old Testament that end up equaling about 23.3% of our income. So if you're like legalistic man or woman who's like, you got to give a tithe. Well, it's like, you're only giving 10%, dude. Read your Bible. It would be 23.3%. But good news for you, we're not even under the tithe. We're under the law of liberty and under the law of grace. And so just as we hear from the Lord of what he's done for us and what he's purchased us for and what he's called us to hear, then we just want to be like, it's all the Lord's. See, a problem with the tithe is that some people in no way could give a 10% and other people could give a trillion times more than a 10%. So people are limited or hindered one way or the other. But under the law of grace, we just come before the cross and before the throne. Then we say a 10% is not yours, Lord, nor is 23.3%. 100% is yours. And so if this month your spirit leans on my heart that I'm to give a generously above and beyond amount, I believe that I am ministering with the ability that you provide and that you are going to provide that ability. You're going to take care of me. We praise God that, that he has done an incredible work in our church. Just, it's been really neat because in the last few years that we've done summer in the park, there's times that we like forget to take an offering or, you know, there's times where just people aren't prepared and, and like the summer months are like way below our budget. And we're always like, you know, but then we're always, oh, the Lord totally provides in November for July, you know. And it's been so neat this year to just, even if it's summer service or family camp time, whatever, just you guys praise the Lord. This is God's grace upon us. He's moving our body. Just more and more generosity. We are just doing well this summer month with outdoor services. We're doing well this summer. Praise the Lord. That is so neat and so encouraging. But some men have done studies where they said, admittedly, if Christians gave 10% of their income to the church, even if they started at 10% as the base amount, Which for, for, for many of us, you know, that should be the bottom end of things. We should be moving towards higher and more, and myself included. But even if we just, let's just for the sake of discussion, go down to that 10% amount. 
there would be a surplus on hand of unbelievable proportions. One writer said that if every member of the Southern Baptist Convention alone gave 10% of their income, the Great Commission would be fulfilled in five years. So the gospel would go to the ends of the earth in five years if just one denomination of the Christian faith tithed. Ron Blue writes, if all Christians were reduced to a welfare income and they gave 10% of that amount, the church of Jesus Christ, we presently know it, would immediately double its receipts. A research project done by Moody Monthly Magazine reveals that the average church member gives only 2.5% of his income to the church. And you know, just praising the Lord for where our giving has come as a church. If I'm remembering correctly, um, a man from our financial board, he put together a study and did graphs and charts so that we can just understand just how we're doing as a church. There were no names on it. So by the way, I don't know who gives what at all. So as far as I know, you're all good, right? So don't worry about that. Um, but, you know, so looking at that, um, I kind of I kind of did my own study on top of that. And we found that about 50% of our church, who would say regular people of our church, give something. And 50% of this church give nothing. Okay? So then you take the 50% that's, that's given, and almost 46% of the pie is less, is, is less than $500 a year per either family unit or individual that that might be. So that's about $40 a month. And so, you know, if you just do a, a basic average study, that is way below what was even a concept, I think, in even the Old Testament or that should be spurred forward into the New Testament. And so just dreaming the dreams of God of what he would want to do in this church in more people on staff to take care of people better and to do you know, better quality and, and to um, not drop any balls and to go higher up and further in for the kingdom here and in Prineville and in this region and then globally to the world. If we just tithed and started at a floor amount. Some math that was done last night shows that we could have nearly $400,000 a year as a church to spend towards the kingdom of God for his glory among the whole world. And right now we're at about 181. Praise God for that $181,000. That is incredible. Praise God. It's so, so encouraging. But I believe that God would, would have more for his kingdom. And so may he stir in our hearts as we look at his grace, as we look at the treasures that he's poured out upon us, that we would imitate him by also being generous Givers. And by the way, this isn't for me. This wouldn't go in my pocket. This is for his kingdom, for his glory. It's, it's away from me, okay? So it's, it's out there for, for you and for this community and for this globe that we could do so much more. You know, we have one man on staff here, all right? One guy on staff, you're looking at him. And we have a bookkeeper that gets $200 a month or something like that. I think we upped it, $300 a month for the bookkeeper, all right? Those are, that's it. 
And, you know, we see just, man, the potential to have an administrator here and to have an assistant and to have a secretary who's able to just full time just help keep in communication with everybody and keep things organized. To have a youth pastor that could pour out to the youth of this town to support missionaries as they go. I mean, um, the numbers are crazy, but we are packed to the rafters with kids in our children's ministry. We got a lot of families coming in with like five kids right? We're packed to the rafters back there. We're about to explode. Guys, we're, we're talking right now, like, Lord, we got to do something with getting another facility right around here or something. We need room for our kids, all right? So that we can safely and effectively disciple them. We're very prayerful about this. This isn't just on a whim stuff. We're prayerful. We fasted. We're just asking the Lord for wisdom, and we're thankful for what God is doing here now. And that it's only moving forward. And so we're going to have the worship team come up. And as we go to take communion and remember the cross of Jesus Christ, remember the blood that he so freely gave and how he willingly laid down his life for the redemption of sinners. Please, I ask that you would let the Lord change your mind today if you see God as a taker and not a giver. You see, the heart that does not hilariously give to the kingdom sees God as a taker. He's just out to rob my fun. There's just a whole bunch of do-nots in the Bible. He just wants to take everything I got and now I have to give. And now there's this big guilt trip of a sermon brought, you know, with random pie charts in this guy's mind, you know. Gosh, this is why I don't go to church. You guys, look at Jesus. When we take communion right now, ponder, meditate, remember the cross. Remember that precious blood that's worth more than gold or silvers and is more valuable than, and effective than the blood of bulls and goats. And remember how even today, maybe for you for the first time, It can come and cleanse you of your sins. And though your sins are like scarlet and they are putrid and dirty, you will be washed as white as snow. That is by the blood of Jesus that is freely spilt so you could be forgiven. And you remember that free arms going down on the cross out of his own will and his own accord, taking the nails, taking the nails in his feet so that his body might absorb the wrath of God against sinners. Do not look to God as a taker. He is a giver. He has given not only all of the the common grace to this earth that we could enjoy all things in creation, but he's also given us salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. And not only that, after salvation, he gives gifts that we could be edified. And may we move during this last worship song and examining the cross to be free in our use of our gifts, to serve one another, Man, that our bank account would be the Lord's. And that by the Spirit of God, He would 
he would determine our giving amounts. In your own time today, and during this last song, come forward. Grab the elements of communion. Go to your seat and just ponder the blood of Jesus represented there in that cup. And ponder the body of Jesus stripped and whipped and bruised and beaten and pierced, wounded for your transgressions. Thank God for being a giving God. And just ask him to transform your heart, your mind. That he would move by his spirit today to a lifestyle change. And that our homes would no longer be homes where we are living for every pleasure. And that a $100,000 paycheck has a $100,000 lifestyle to go alongside with it but that he would move us to feel the squeeze financially so that others might not feel the pinch. That he would move us to not consider anything that we have as our own. It might be our own, but that we wouldn't consider it as our own. That we would freely give. Excited to see the Nepal missions trip forming and applications coming in, some 20 applications coming in from our church this week and steps of faith, people writing $200 checks to get their Nepal deposit in and five other people from outside of our church seeing what God's doing here and wanting to be a part of it and, and, and just in the leadership of the church, just hearing God's call that every member's a missionary here and every member's a giver, and we're all, as a church, gonna send this team. And so as we remember the cross of Jesus, we are even preparing our hearts to be generous givers for the missions of this church and the Nepal team. Let's come on up and let's remember Jesus. Let's fix our eyes on Christ. Come up as you're ready.